Welcome to the Age of Audio. My name's Graham Brown from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co. The Age of Audio is a series of conversations with thought leaders and changemakers in the world of audio. That's podcast, radio, and social audio converging with big data to create engaging and authentic content for a new generation of listeners. So delighted to be speaking to Ian from Cold War Conversations. A lot of people speak highly of you. Are you surprised, were you pleasantly surprised by how well this has been received by your fans in terms of like people supporting you and actually carrying this podcast forward? Yes, I am. I mean, I, certainly when I started it, I never realized how popular it, it would get. I'd expected probably get a few hundred listeners, maybe an episode or something like that. Um, but it really started to snowball quite quickly hmm. early on. And um, as I think you're aware, you know, we hit the million downloads mark uh, a couple of months back, which was <laughs> I never imagined we would get anywhere near that. And uh, we have a loyal band of listeners who, mm. you know, support us financially as well. No, it's fantastic. And the content's great as well. I was listening to one about the Irish lad in Lebanon. Yeah. And I, I didn't realize how many Irish served out there. I mean, it's kind of a bit of an untold story, isn't it? Well, that, that's very much what the podcast is about. Whilst I enjoy interviewing some of the big names and names that you know people are familiar with, what I love is the unknown stories, the stories hmm. that have never been told and would never get told unless you know I'd ferreted them out or you know track tra track them down. Those are the stories that I probably enjoy the most, and some of them are just so unexpectedly powerful and hmm. and moving as well. That that's the other thing I didn't expect, and I think it is sort of almost an aspect of audio because you're concentrating on the listening. I think with video and audio, you, you're slightly distracted by the visual content as well. Hmm. Whereas with audio on its own, you're hearing every nuance, pause, breath, that level of detail that you probably wouldn't see with video in my hmm. view. It's more human as well, isn't it? Like you say that you're talking about stories which aren't necessarily the big celebrities, the unknown human stories. And then they're quite emotional sometimes as well, inspiring. And they're heroic in many ways, aren't they? Even though they don't class themselves as heroic stories, they have all that kind of like narrative framework that you expect of a the hero myth, right? You know, somebody yeah. faces adversity, was an outsider and so on. I wonder why you think that the audience gravitates towards this content, in, especially in this time. What is it about history? We're seeing this explosion of history content because let's go back to school and think about history lessons and <laughs> our history teachers. Why weren't they popular as popular as history is now on podcasts? What was going on? Because it's the same content, right? It is the same content. I think particularly with my subject matter, a lot more of it is being dramatized on TV and film. Um, so you've got things like Deutschland 83 and that series. You had the Americans and espionage series as well. Um, you've had movies like The Couriers recently come out with Benedict mm. Cumberbatch, which is a spy espionage movie as well. There's 
and the 1980s, which is the sort of one of the main periods that I lived through and where I experienced the Cold War, has become a very popular period for, mm. you know, TV series to cover. And whilst the podcast is called Cold War Conversations, it's not purely the military side. I'm very interested in the social and the civilian experience hmm. um, as well. And and almost as you said, you know, sometimes I approach people and they say, well, why would be why would anybody be interested in hearing my story? It's very ordinary. It's hmm. very, it's very boring. But it's the little details that you find in that that you wouldn't get necessarily in a textbook or in a a mainstream documentary. And I think that that's the other key thing about podcasting is you can really niche down. Hmm on a subject that might not have a mainstream interest, but you can build a decent audience around that subject matter. Hmm. Is there ever a temptation to not say dumb it down, but go mass with your content that, you know, you want to grow this bigger and bigger. How do you sort of refrain from that and keeping it focused? Like you say, keeping it niche because people want that content. And then, you know, maybe there's always that temptation as an advertiser or yeah, maybe I can, if I cover wider subject areas, I can get more people. How do you keep it really focused? By keeping it varied. I mean, that's what I've been really fascinated by is that the subject matter I cover is quite varied. Hmm. It would be very easy to produce a podcast that purely focused on the military side or on the civilian experience or on espionage, for example. But what I'm finding and the feedback I get from listeners is they say, look, I came for the spy episode, but I've stayed because I'm fascinated by the other varied content hmm. that you've got in there and stories that I never, that I never realized. And I'm really, you know, pleased about that because I do like to try and keep it fresh and not the same old, you know, hmm. the same old stories each time. Hmm. Yeah, my enduring memories of the Cold War as being 17 years old, and I remember waking up one, it must have been an evening, and in my parents' home, the family home, lying on the couch and waking up because something was going on in the news, and it was November 1989, so you know what's coming <laughs> next. And being yeah. 17 years old and seeing people, normal people, East Germans, standing on top of the, the wall, the mm. wall, not the Berlin Wall, the wall. And mm. it was, for me, it was like, I couldn't believe the scenes that I was seeing. At the time, being a teenager as well, like you can easily accept that, that okay, that, mm. that's how things are done now. But, you know, I'd grown up and it always been this presence that that's how the world was. And I think we kind of forget, don't we, what the Cold War really was like. There was that impending presence always. I remember like things like bomb shelters. We don't think about those now, but even back then, people talked about them, right? Is you know, have we sort of uh, uh, what I'm trying to get to is that you know, the, what you're capturing now is is stuff that we've easily committed to memory and forgotten about, right? And what sort of things have you sort of discovered going back in time and talking to these people that were obvious back then, but we don't see now? Just the simplicity of life, I think. I think with the Cold War, there is an element of nostalgia for a, for a world that was more straightforward, a world where we knew who our enemies were or our mm. perceived enemies were, and there were those two big geopolitical blocks of you know the 
communist countries or the the countries allied to the Soviet Union and then NATO and and the Western countries. And it was very much almost black and white. It was very clear what those differences were. And I think there there is a nostalgia for that safety that not safety because obviously there was the ever ever you know shadow presence of, of nuclear war, mm. but you know that that sort of predictability I guess of of life there. I think the the surprising things I, I found is that, and I, I probably knew this as well, but the similarities of life mm. across the the wall or the division. Um, between the two blocks. I mean, people still, you know, fell in love, went to school, you know, all, all of that stuff still still went on. You know, mm. the differences were around the political influences, and that's where it's interesting where you hear, you know, what was it like to be taught Marxism-Leninism at school? <laughs> you know, you thought history was not... <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> was... <laughs> But you know, fa- fancy digesting Das Kapital oh, wow. or something like that for GCSE. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Is it you know different? Like the, the stories, the, the the version of the Cold War that you get from the stories compared to what we learned in history, as an example. You know, obviously it's, it's a lot more humanized. But you know, do you, do you learn a different facet of it? Because I mean, you've studied this for years anyway, so I'm sure you know better than anybody else, but have you seen a different angle to it? I have seen a different angle. I mean, one of, one of my early interviews, and it was one of the ones that, that, was, I, that I was most nervous about doing because it was a big, a big name. It was the son of Nikita Khrushchev, who was the Soviet leader mm. at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So this was Sergei Khrushchev, and he was about 20 years old at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So he was old enough to know what was going on. And his father was confiding in him what he was having to deal with and what some of the decisions were that he, he was faced with to oh. some level. And I found that just, um, you know, I was talking to somebody who was at the right hand of, of a guy who was making decisions that could have ended the world hmm. at that time and some of the insight he gave me i mean things i wasn't necessarily aware of because i mean you know i i've not been to university hmm. so my learnings are, are from reading and a passion as you can see from the book collection behind me not that i can pretend to have read every one of them <laughs> but you know he he was telling me about you know how the US hadn't realized that in Cuba, they'd given local command of the nuclear weapons to the Soviet commanders in in Cuba with instructions that if Cuba was invaded, they could use them. Hmm. And things like that were made it even closer to nuclear war because there wasn't that overall control that you got later on in the Cold War where the president had to order a a nuclear strike. They'd actually given local command there. Hmm. It's other things as well from the civilian ex- experiences as well. That the the way that people had to live almost a schizophrenic life in a country like East Germany. So you'd have a certain facade that you would give to your workmates and other people, and then at home you would have a completely different life where you could perhaps speak more freely or more. 
openly with your family. But even then, with the opening of the Stasi files, there's people who discover that their husbands or wives yeah. were informers for the for the Stasi there. But having to, you know, live that life where you're mm. having to carry those two personas. And I interviewed a guy who was a KGB a deep cover agent in in the US. And he was essentially living three or four different lives because he was a KGB agent. He'd married a woman in the US who had no idea of his double life. And he also had a wife and family in East Germany who we would periodically go and visit as as well. So, you know, he was juggling. What like was the real life? That was the question. Three or right? four, yeah. three or four different stuff. lives. Yeah. You know, I found that really interesting mm. getting into that. How do you, you know, how would you, how would you deal with that? Hmm. It's fascinating. Yeah. I, I wonder as well. I mean, you, you're talking about the Stasi files as well. They were famous for recording everything, weren't they? Every detail, listening well, to they, everything. Yeah, they do. But it, it's the banality of them right. as well, because it's sort of like subject A got in his car, drove to the shop, bought two potatoes, yeah. <laughs> had them put in a paper bag or whatever, drove back. You know, it, it's the complete right. banality of, of what's in there. I mean, I interviewed a um, former BBC journalist who'd had access to his Stasi file and hmm. he shared with me some of the surveillance photos as well where he'd been out walking in the street and they'd obviously got a camera in a bag or something over somebody's shoulder and they'd, you know, they, they'd got photos of him. So it was quite pervasive but not necessarily very efficient hmm. in you know some of the info certainly some of the information it, it was gathering i mean people have seen films like the uh, the lives of others yeah fantastic the trail there yeah. but that level of surveillance was quite rare in terms hmm. of you know putting bugs in houses and, and and things like that but the way that they the stasi again were using psychological ways to make people inform so if they were trying to get information about a group of people, they would approach one of them and say, we need you to give us information about your friends. And that mm. person would normally say in the first place, no, I won't do that. In which case the Sazi would probably then respond with, well, your children won't be going to university then. And your wife's going to lose her job and various other things are going to happen. Are you sure you still want to, not tell us what's going on. You know, when I hear those stories, I think I'd like to think I would have taken the mm -hmm. hero status and not bowed to that, but I don't know. Mm. You've no idea the wall is going to come down and you think that that situation is going to continue for the rest of your life. What would you do? Mm. It's, uh, it's, it's not an easy question, but it's a fascinating one. And one, one of the many things that just keeps me coming back to the Cold War Absolutely. That idea of you're, you're empathizing with the people of the time and trying to see it from their perspective, like even Khrushchev's son, as an example, I don't yeah. know what he was like as a person, but I'm certainly thinking he probably wasn't the demonic figure that his father was at the time to the media, right? That you probably understood a little bit about him. Yeah. And, and he talked about seeing Stalin on a reviewing stand when, when he was with his father. And the mm. one of the great lines he gave me, he said, look, my father said to me, if Stalin's office calls, say nothing, mm. say absolutely nothing. Because what Khrushchev was fearful of 
was that his son would say, oh, yeah, he's meeting with so-and-so. And Stalin was always paranoid of coups and plots and things like that, and that Stalin would put two and three together and make, you know, whatever. Wow. And, uh, you know, that even at, even at those higher levels in, um, you know, the, the Soviet countries, you still had that, that danger of people thinking that you were plotting or you were up to mm. something. How did it feel to be connected in some form to Stalin, you know, who is very much like a mythical figure, isn't he? That and, and very fearful. I mean, we all know the stories of Hitler, for example, but I think Stalin, a lot more ominous, isn't he? There's less documented about him in the media. He's less of a, you know, a fantastical figure like Hitler in the sense that he's the obvious bad guy. But Stalin seems to be, you know, unless you've studied history, mm. I mean, he was as bad as the baddest guy out there. But you've connected with him through somebody. That must feel very strange, mustn't it? And especially given that, you know, you started off this podcast as a passion project and now you're talking to these people. How does that feel? Um, it, it does feel very strange. It, 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 it certainly does. I mean, you know, I, the... The beauty of podcasting is that you can approach people that you normally have no right to speak to or have any other way of getting into them. Um, and, you know, that, that gives you opportunities like speaking to the likes of Sergei Khrushchev, speaking to somebody. Um, there was a, a woman I spoke to who was age 12 and she, she was, lived in Romania. She came back from school. And the Securitate were in her house pulling the place apart. And that, that's the Romanian equivalent of the Stasi. Mm. And her father had gone on a protest in Bucharest, a one-man protest against the leaders of communist Romania. Oh, wow. And it completely turned her life upside down um, at, at that point. And for people to share these stories with me, I mean, that that that's the the other thing is I thought – okay, I'm going to hear these stories, I'm going to record them, and then I'm going to publish them. But there's a lot of emotion. And, you know, a number of people say, you know what? I haven't even told my family this level of detail hmm. in, in this story. And, and some of these guests come, come up through complete serendipity. I mean, I, one of the interviews I really love was with a guy who was in the Hungarian uprising in 1956. And I'd been after somebody who'd experienced it and could, could talk about it in English for quite some time. And it just came by chance on Twitter. I saw a tweet appear and it was from his daughter saying, this is my dad having his last beer before lockdown. This time, 70 years ago, he was handed wow. a machine gun and was told to storm the radio station in Budapest. Now to most people, they would think, I'm not really sure what that's about, but immediately I knew this guy fought in the Hungarian uprising. So got in contact with her through Twitter Hmm. recorded the interview and she said to me later she said i didn't know hardly any of that he's talked to me a little bit about it hmm. but you have just illuminated a, a whole um you know different part of the story and no idea what what he'd experienced how does that happen is it a skill that you have obviously you've got a talent to do that and get that out of people and you're passionate about the subject and they trust you is there something special about audio and the podcast that enables that to happen? Or is it, you know, maybe the, the times we live in when people are more open 
have you ever thought about why is it that you can almost get to this sort of therapist level, um, you know, engagement with the people you're talking to? I think it's to do with with audio and the intimacy hmm. of audio as well. What I find if I listen back to an episode, you know, you can see the guests warm up hmm. as the interview progresses. They begin to trust you. They begin to know you and they start to, you know, share more with you. And it, it is like a one-to-one conversation. Obviously, I'm very straight with them. This is going to be published. Are you okay with this and, and all that, you know, that, that, that side of things. But because it's a one-to-one conversation and it just you start to build that, that element of, of trust there. One of the areas that I love in an interview is when I hear a guest say, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Hmm. Let me tell you about bang. And often mm. this, that's where the, you know, the, the gold is at, at, at the end of that. I mean, I joke, I joke, you know, when people ask, what, what do I do? I say, I just press the record button and ask a few questions. That, that's all I do. Mm. But I think the key is listening. You've got to listen to, it's very easy to be looking down your list and thinking, right, my next question is this mm. and not listening to what your interviewee is saying to you. And if you listen you will hear something that will take you off on a complete tangent, but it may deliver you hmm. something you would have never got out of that interview before. That that being said, I often go back and I'll listen to an interview and think, oh, damn, why didn't I hmm. press a bit more on on that? But Yeah, it's a rabbit hole. That, that, that Those are the best parts about these conversations, aren't they? That you can really yeah. go deep into it and... A lot of people are sort of used to a format when it's like, okay, I've got to get, let's just shut up and let me get through these questions. That That's in a way how we've been trained, isn't it? I think the other thing is we're also used to very short sound bites and, oh, we've got the news coming up. We're going to have to cut that interview short. Hmm. Whereas with podcast, it's almost, I don't know whether the term slow radio or it's slow audio, you know, you can expand out and you can have an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, even, mm. even more, you know, if, if people want it. And mm. so you're not having to, you know, whilst I do edit to mainly to get rid of my stumbles and my ums and errs, you can have that, that long form that you wouldn't be able to get, certainly in mainstream media. Hmm. I'm curious to know what you're like when you're not doing a podcast. I think from my <laughs> perspective, I really enjoy podcasting and everything you, you've said is really what I feel about podcasts as well, is you can achieve like a real connection with somebody fast mm. if you listen really intently and, you know, you, you respect what they have to say rather than have to get your point across. You know, in, in that is, I think, something that podcasts can do. I've been gravitated, I've gravitated towards podcasts because in real life, if such a thing, I'm not very, you know, I'm not very articulate in these sort of social spaces. I'm good on stage, but like put me, the, my biggest fear is being in a networking event where somebody walks up to you and says, so Graham, what do you do? That's when like, I want the hole in the ground to open up and f- me falling in it. And, but on this platform, I can speak to anybody. What was it like with you? Are you, how are you sort of off mic, off air? I think podcasting has helped me become more confident off air. I feel that my speaking skills have improved although after people listen to this they might disagree <laughs> um it's all good 
if you say to somebody that I have that you have a podcast, it does make them stop. It does, you know, they they look at you in a different way. Hmm. And the bit that makes me laugh is, you know, my daughter's at school and you know, she's obviously mentioned that I have a podcast and her friends are like, Oh, that's really cool. Your dad's got a podcast. <laughs> and she said, Well, just you know, check out the subject matter before you think it's really cool. <laughs> well, she should do well in her history lessons, though, surely now. That- Both of my kids aren't that interested in history, <laughs> much to my immense that is, that is karma. But they Ian. do understand that the passion that I have and the, yeah. you know, I show them reviews and I show them, um, you know, emails I get, and they're quite astonished that, mm. you know, there is that that level of interest out there. But there definitely is. There's a real appetite for history. Mm. And obviously with the niche that I work in, I'm seeing a real appetite for Cold War history. Yeah. Well, you know your audience very well as well. I was looking at, um, just doing my research, looking at different podcasts using Patreon. Uh, you know, it seems that very niche subjects do really well on Patreon. And I was looking at one, for example, that I was, I went down a rabbit hole with is an American podcast called Dungeons and Daddies. It's like five guys who do yeah. like live, live role play. And they do it really well. I mean, one of them's an actor, but you know, they're actually playing it and they, they produce it really well. And these guys are making $170,000 a month from donations. Wow. And it, like, one of the, like I was looking at the Patreon and the funny thing is you look at a Patreon page, it's very sort of basic, isn't it? In design, it's sort of like, you know, design yeah. from many years ago. It's not flash. Yeah. It's very like, this is, this is what it is. <laughs> and I, I think the authentic, authentic nature of it is really good. You can do like $50. You can uh, be a character in one of their games, you know, like a non-player right. character, but they know their audience very well. They're like, their audience is middle-aged guys who are into tabletop gaming that's it which is like yeah. enjoying a resurgence and they they involve their audience they they talk to them directly and they're doing really well on patreon how about what was it like for you on that patreon journey like you know did you ever feel oh no i can't do this and ask for money when you started out or was it did it come naturally um i did because you have that natural british reticence to <laughs> uh to 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 do that but in in the end, I thought that you know that this, I'm spending a lot of time on this. There are some costs in producing this stuff, um, and you know, I would like to be able to do this on a more permanent basis, rather than sort of like as a as a side hmm. um, hustle. Um, and it it sort of grew. You know, I, I there's you know. Um, there was content on there that was not in the published episodes. So there was outtakes and things like that, that I put up, I do zoom get togethers with certain levels of Patreon. So there is engage, you know, there's engagement there. I'm posting probably at least three or four times a month. I'm wary of sort of bombarding them with, you know, every little thing that I'm up to and, and stuff like that. Um, with most of the authors that we have, because as well as doing the eyewitness interviews, we do do author interviews with any, with, you know, Cold War books that are coming up to be published. So we often do uh, re, uh, giveaways there hmm. for them as well. And that really helps with social media engagement. So in addition to the Patreon, I have almost 12,000 Twitter followers hmm. as well, which helps there as well. But mainly the, the feeling I get 
and I, I really should survey them around this, is that they want, they're interested in the content and they believe in the project. They want me to continue preserving right. these relatively unknown stories of Cold War history and to keep finding more and more hmm. for them hmm. is the main reason there. I mean, one of the things that did make it take off was this. Yes. Corkbacked, is it? The art. Oh, Everything, look at that. Quality. quality. This is the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks <laughs> coaster um, that every edition. Patreon gets. And what's quite nice is on an otherwise quite serious subject, you can, you know, have a bit of a joke around getting one of these. This yeah. is your badge of, you know, um, authenticity <laughs> with Cold War Conversations. And that worked quite well. When I introduced that, that did start to uh, ra raise the Patreon. But I think most people really... Are patrons because they want to support the project and they want to support me and they want to hear more content yeah i think it's great well what do you think about now you um, may or may not be aware that spotify and apple are going to start offering uh, subscription models on on their platforms micropayments um have you sort of looked into that is there anything that you've considered have you looked at any sort of alternative charging models as well for your podcast i have I have looked into it. I mean, what I do want to make sure is that the bulk of the content is free for people to listen to mm. um, because that's really why I started the project was to make this available as as widely as possible. Um, but as is it is it's expanded, I you know I, I do look at other um, options around um, you know, raising revenue aside from Patreon. So I have done a few uh, bits of advertising for publishers mm. where they can get pre-roll and post-roll ads. Luckily with my host, I can dynamically place those on. Mm. So they can be on every episode, all 176 of them, I think now. So that that's proved uh, quite successful, but, but I'm very conscious of my listeners. So mm. I'm not going to be advertising razor blades or things like that on there i want to make sure that whatever is on there is relevant to um the cold war hmm. and, and relevant to the content that they want to listen to mm -hmm. yeah well i think it's amazing I, i've really enjoyed just being part of the journey today talking to you as well and just i love what you're doing i really do and i think that either when i i i'm very privileged to be able to speak to people who passionate about what they do in podcasting i think there's been a real sort of flourishing and even in the last 18 months we've seen a real boom um you know of people doing stuff and finding audiences important which is i think the amazing part is of all of this ian is that there always was audiences it's just that maybe they didn't have the platform or maybe it just wasn't mainstream enough for people to own up and admit that they're into this stuff right and now you're seeing people saying screw that it's like, you know, I'm into this now and I'm going to listen to this. Yeah. But there is still a huge number of people out there who haven't discovered podcasts. Mm. So there is still a big, big audience out there. And I think, you know, from my point of view, one of the things that I think is, has been important to my listeners is consistency. So I started three years ago and every week without fail, I've published an episode. Mm. Even, even when I had COVID for two weeks. But wow. that was because I planned ahead. I had episodes backed up. They were set to just fire off. 
the the next few Saturdays ahead. But that that's helped build the audience because yeah. you know I I get lovely emails from people saying you know what I look forward to sitting down on a Saturday mm. night and listening to your latest episode and you know you, you feel God I've got quite a responsibility here yeah. now this this isn't just you know this is nice to do that there, there are people there who really look forward to the content and mm. are really loyal listeners and uh, I mean I'm indebted to them to that they help me to continue producing this stuff hmm. but, you know there's plenty more stories out there to come absolutely you've started something ian even when he's sick in bed <laughs> with covid he's still how about that the man's a machine he's a genius <laughs> it's awesome i really enjoyed this Ian. it's a good chat You've been listening to The Age of Audio with me, Graham Brown, from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co. To get access to all the audio conversations and book content for The Age of Audio, go to www.theageofaudio.com. One more time, theageofaudio.com.